Hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads, with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing The Bombard Story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're on Chapter 14. Chapter 14, Arakaka and Arrival The next day, the miracle happened, and it was another Wednesday. By then it required an effort to get up in the morning. I usually woke up about sunup, but I was in no hurry to look around the horizon, having become convinced that it would be as empty as ever. I usually continued to lie in my sleeping bag until the rays of the sun rising in the sky started to get hot. That morning, at about ten o'clock, I took a cursory glance outside the tent and then jumped as if I had been given an electric shock. A ship! I shouted almost involuntarily, and there on the starboard quarter, about two and a half miles away, was a ship on a course which must bring it across my own. It was a big cargo boat of about 7,000 tons, making quite slow speed. There was no sign that I had been sighted, and I fumbled feverishly for my heliograph to flash the sun's rays into the eyes of those on the bridge, like a child trying to annoy passers-by. At the end of what seemed an interminable wait, someone saw me, and the ship changed course to cut across my stern. My morale had risen at one bound. I was convinced that the ship must be just short of its destination in one of the West Indy harbours. I had been right all the time. I was near land. I waved my little trickle-or flag at the end of an oar. Imagine how proud I was when the ship, as it drew near me, ran up a Union Jack to the peak and then dipped it three times, the salute given to warships met on the high seas. I replied by waving my own little flag. When we were abeam, the captain switched on his loud hailer and asked, Do you need any assistance? Just the time, please, and my exact longitude, I replied. 49 degrees, 50 minutes. I was exactly 10 degrees, that is to say 600 miles from my estimated position. I felt as if someone had hit me over the head with a hammer. It was more than I could stand. Seizing the skull, I made for the boat, muttering feverishly to myself, This is it. Fifty-three days, I give up. The captain hailed me again. Will you come aboard? I will get the dinghy hoisted in. The experiment is over, I thought. After all, fifty-three days must prove something. I bumped the ship's side and climbed on board. She was the Arakaka, a big passenger cargo steamer out of Liverpool. I was met by a short, sturdy man about fifty years old, who was in a state of considerable excitement, Captain Carter of Liverpool. He asked me straight away, Would you like to take you and your equipment on board? We are making for Georgetown, British Guiana. My first reaction was to answer yes, but then I remembered my experience with the city Farouche. I thought of my friends and the seafaring folk at Boulogne, who would say, so you didn't get across the Atlantic after all. The 53 days the voyage had lasted would have served no purpose, although I had sufficiently proved my theory. The man in the street, or rather the ordinary seaman, would regard my giving up at this point as invalidating the whole experiment. If I was to be instrumental in saving all those human lives, then my success had to be complete. Only thus could I render a real service to the world of the sea. I pulled myself together and asked the captain for a few minutes to make up my mind. In the meantime, he offered me a freshwater shower, which I accepted with gratitude. While I let the delicious water run over me, I heard one officer remark to another in the passage, You have to hand it to the French. They will try anything. 
that made up my mind. I would go on. I made a quick mental calculation and realized that at my present speed, I would need another 20 days to reach land. It was then the 10th of December, which meant arriving about the 3rd of January. In order to take my position with certainty, I was going to need the pilot book for 1953. The captain came to see me again while I was in the shower and said, Wouldn't you like a meal? I declined vigorously, but he insisted. You can't refuse a hot meal. It was my first proper meal in 53 days, and I remember it well. There was a fried egg, a little piece of liver, a spoonful of cabbage and some fruit. Not only was I to be reproached later for eating it, but it gave me the worst stomach trouble of the whole voyage. I sent off a telegram to my wife and was shown round the ship. I shall always remember the luxurious officer's wardroom with its leather armchairs. The table was laid for lunch. The passengers lived in true British comfort. Noting all this, I repeated to myself, Another twenty days, another twenty days. The captain took me into the chart house and showed me my exact position and gave me a note of the declinations I would have to observe as I approached the land. He gave me a pilot book with the 1953 figures and presented me with a copy of the superb British Admiralty sailing instructions, which he dedicated to me. Then, crossing the deck with slightly uncertain steps but still perfectly firm on my feet, I made for the rail, where they had put down a Jacob's Ladder for me to regain the heretic. Most of the crew were there to cheer me on, promising to meet again on the land, and the captain seemed much moved. Just as I was about to go down the ladder, he cried, What can I do for you? You must let me do something. Is there nothing that would be of assistance? Then I remembered that I had heard no bark during the whole of the journey and said that I would very much like to hear, on Christmas night, the sixth Brandenburg Concerto. One of the gifts I had received on board the Arachica was a new battery for my wireless set. I'll turn the world upside down if necessary, he replied. I give you my word, you will have your concerto for Christmas. I dropped the tow line and the Arachica waited for me to stand off a little before starting her engines so that my fragile craft should not be sucked into the powerful propellers. A light breeze had sprung up and I was in a hurry to take advantage of it, so I hoisted my sail and set course for the west. Our meeting had lasted an hour and a half. The Arachica slowly gathered way, and amidst the bellowing of her siren, dipped her flag three times again in salute. I knew that I was going to regret the Arachica, and that sometimes I was going to think, why did I not take advantage of the captain's offer? It was probably my last chance. But for my experiment to be a success, it was absolutely essential for me to continue, to press on, and in the end, it was the decision of which I was most proud. The entry in my logbook that day read, Wednesday, the 10th of December. Wednesday must be my lucky day. I have just been on board a ship, have had a light meal, and on my way again. Alas, I am only on the 50th meridian and have another 600 miles to go. At this speed, I shall need another 15 or 20 days. Morale, high, but I still have it in for the specialists. Now at least I know how to take my longitude, I cannot think how I timed my first sight at 12.15 hours. It must have been at least 1,300 hours, and the noon sun will now give me my true position. Jeanette has had a message, and the voyage continues. God is good. It was the cargo steamer Arachica, Captain Carter, out to Liverpool, destination Guiana. I have to admit, I very nearly stayed on board. Only the merest chance could have arranged such a meeting in that part of the ocean, and I might quite easily have continued on my voyage without seeing a thing. 
In that case, it is more than likely that I would have gone mad. Convinced of my proximity to land, I had been spending more and more of my time scanning the horizon, tiring my eyes, wearing myself out and becoming a little more demoralized each day. The blessed Arakaka not only saved me by reassuring my family, but raised longitude with precision. The captain had pointed out to me in the pilot book a little table called the time equation, which supplied a small correction to subtract from the hour the sun reached its zenith. As long as I could determine this time, I could not be more than 60 miles out in my calculations. I could now navigate with confidence. My watch had been put right, and the new radio battery I had been so kindly given enabled me to make a further check. That day, and for some days following, I had no appetite for fish. Unfortunately, that was all there was to eat. The snack I had eaten on board Arakaka was having its effect. In due course, back in Paris again, a famous expert on nutrition told me, if we had known you had a meal on the ship you met, we would not have rated your chances of survival very high. What now happened to me was identical with the experience of political deportees and liberated prisoners of war. I had taken two forms of nourishment. Before my little meal on the 53rd day, my food had been abnormal. Afterwards, losing all appetite for fish, I became undernourished. The human organism gradually accustoms itself to a change and diminution in the normal ration, but after a proper meal, the digestive system seems to say, there, things are back to normal again, I need to make no further special effort. Rather like an athlete who stops in the middle of a race and finds he cannot start again, the stomach becomes prey to a sort of despair. I lost more weight, the photographs prove it, during the 12 days still remaining to land than in the 53 days prior to my meeting with the Arachica. I had now made up my mind on the value to be attached to the books written for the benefit of castaways, with all their hints on navigation, signs that land is near and all the evidence of floating timber, butterflies, gossamer threads, flies and birds. Do not take it too hard, dear author of the raft book. Whether the frigate bird can spend a night at sea or not, I do not know, but it is certainly to be found 1,500 miles from land. It is also incorrect to say that it does not catch its own fish, as I have seen them swoop on the flying fish chased out of the sea by the dolphins. How had I managed to make such hopeless miscalculations in my position? I took my first sight on leaving the Canaries in a very rough sea, and must have mistaken the crest of a wave for the horizon. By a curious combination of error, I had obtained my correct latitude, but was an hour out in the time. I thought I had determined the 15 degrees of longitude at 12.15, when in reality it was 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I had therefore concluded that I must make a correction of 45 minutes, that is to say a minimum of 10 degrees. When I thought I had reached 60 degrees west, I was only at 50 degrees west and still had another 600 miles to go. I wanted to reach French territory, particularly as they were the only West Indian islands with a protected harbour on the east coast. I therefore tried to keep on the latitude of Martinique, always prepared to drift towards Barbados if the north wind persisted. I ran the risk, nevertheless, of being carried to the south of the British island and seeing my route prolonged by some 300 miles. Three days after meeting the Arakaka, I encountered the most curious weather of the whole voyage. As soon as the morning had passed, a flat calm descended again, but an endless stream of little woolly clouds, quite low, hurried past right above me. 
The dinghy barely moved and the whole day I sat there in an impotent rage, watching the clouds scudding towards land. Fortunately, I did not spend the day alone. A somewhat embarrassing companion, but at least a companion, put in an appearance. A thunderous snort suddenly attracted my attention off to the left, and I saw, coming towards me, a large whale. I feared at first that the beast would come too near the dinghy and damage it with its flukes, but although it had several good looks, it never came nearer than a dozen feet or so. It moved ponderously round the boat most of the day, and then at dusk gravely made off, never to be seen again. In the meantime, a storm was gathering. At about one o'clock in the morning, the first big waves started to toss my cockle shell around. The final days were not going to spare me. During the twenty days of storm I had already endured, I had been swamped twice, but I had to put up with four more involuntary duckings during the twelve days that remained. Fortunately, I had perfected my bailing procedure. Once the dinghy was full of water, I started to empty it with my linen hat, five or six pints at a time, getting down to the fine work later with a shoe. The simplest methods are often the best when dealing with the elements. My chief joy was to see the sail filled again to bursting and to hear once more the characteristic hiss of my best speed, about three knots. In the absence of a log, the noise the dinghy made through the water enabled me to estimate my speed. The more progress I made, the greater was my fear that some stupid accident would ruin everything just as I was within sight of success. There was still the dread that one wave might be more destructive than the others, nullifying at one blow my successful survival of all previous dangers. In a duel with the sea, not a moment's relaxation is permitted, but I still remember my shouts of joy as I felt the wind whistling in my ears. I finally settled down to sleep quite happily, but was woken abruptly with the feeling that something unusual was going on. I got up. The sea aft was crisscrossed by the phosphorescent wake of some huge fish. I never discovered whether it was a swordfish or a shark, but it had invented a new and dangerous game. Swimming straight at the raft, it ducked underneath it just at the last moment, rasping the bottom with its back. This went on for six hours. Exasperated, I finally made up my mind to attack it, whereupon the beast disappeared as rapidly as it had arrived. The next morning, although no wave had hit the heretic during the night, I found that I was wet through. It was only too clear that the boat was beginning to leak and that my nocturnal visitor must have damaged the fabric sufficiently with his sandpaper back to reduce its impermeability. It was high time I reached my destination. My situation was becoming distinctly uncomfortable. The floats seemed to have come through unscathed and kept up the air pressure, but as water was seeping slowly through the hole of the bottom of the boat, it was impossible to repair the leak. A proper hole would have been easy. Every five hours or so, when the water reached the deck boards, I had to bail, and this went on during the whole ten days that remained before I touched land. The birds became more and more numerous and varied. At last, on the 13th of December, the first seagull appeared, and I was back in familiar territory. During the day, I was able to film a fantastic scene. For some days, a frigate bird, surely one of the most handsome seabirds in existence, had been keeping me company and dived from time to time to catch a flying fish. I had been puzzled to understand exactly how this bird knew how to be at the exact spot when its prey took flight. I suddenly realised that it was working in collaboration with the dolphins. 
These used to make a sudden concerted assault on a shoal of flying fish, scattering them into the air and then chasing them, often leaping out of the water themselves in the process. As soon as the bird saw the hunt begin, it dived towards the pack and came up every time with a flying fish in its beak. Rising to a considerable height, it would drop the fish suddenly, diving rapidly underneath its line of fall to catch it head first in its wide open beak. A quick gulp and it was gone. An almost perfect example of refueling in midair. The most extraordinary thing was to see the fish planing along in parallel flight with the bird. Camera in hand, I tried to record this astonishing sight. The light meal I had eaten on board the Arachica had the most curious effects. First of all, my attack of diarrhea died down overnight, although I half expected the contrary as cabbage and fruit have a laxative effect. Another result was no less surprising and rather more unpleasant. The meal had restored my normal appetite. It was not until I had eaten it on the 10th of December that I began to feel hungry. I suffered thereafter from terrible stomach cramps, although my food supplies were the same and as plentiful as before meeting the ship. I started to yawn like a starving man, something which had never happened in the fifty preceding days. I had nightmares about food every time I went to sleep, with one image appearing like a leitmotif, a dish of chicken with rice. I still cannot understand why. I spent the whole of 20th December remembering all the good meals I had eaten since the war, particularly during the weeks which led up to my departure. Having calculated that, barring accidents, I had about as many more days at sea as my stay at Casablanca had lasted. I tried to remember with each meal of plankton and fish the menu I had eaten on land for each corresponding day. Today I was able to say I lunched at Admiralty House on Veal, this evening with the Casablanca Medical Association on steak. I had at last changed my chart. I had finished with the general chart of the Atlantic and was now marking my position on that of the approaches to the Caribbean. The only drawback was that its larger scale gave me the impression that I had further to go. To mark this event, I threw into the sea my last message in a bottle. It read, Experiment successful. Mission practically accomplished. Will finder please forward this message to... I wanted to see whether any of these messages had been indeed picked up. I considered myself as good as there. The day of the 21st ended with the appearance in my wake of a fish about five feet long, with a pointed snout and an impressive set of teeth. It was the first barracuda I caught. It seemed to look at me with a hungry air. I was afraid of him at first and threw my little winch at him on the end of a line, the method I usually use to scare off sharks, which normally made off at top speed. This beast was in no way put out and continued to follow me with a menacing air. I then fixed my bent knife to the end of the underwater gun and after wounding him two or three times, sunk the blade deep into his body. I thus put an end to this particular argument, and although I gave the creature full marks for courage, I did not appreciate his indigestible flesh. Then, on the 22nd, when I woke up just before sunrise, imagine my surprise to see that I had just been passed by a large cargo boat. I was just in its wake, and it seemed impossible that I should not have been sighted. Determined to send off more news, I let off a flare, to make the ship turn round and find out why it had ignored me but the vessel continued slowly on its way, and I thought for a moment that it had not even seen the flare. Seizing my last one, I threw it in the air where it formed a bright, luminous trail. This time the ship turned round and came back until I was almost alongside. 
She was by no means as easy to board as the Arachica, because the sea was much rougher, but once on deck, I found out that she was a Dutch cargo ship bound for the port of Spain in Trinidad, the most southerly of the West Indies. I had made up my mind to ask them to advise Martinique and Barbados of my imminent arrival and to see if they would give me something to eat, not fish, to enable me to spend Christmas in a dignified fashion if I should still be at sea. The captain received me in a very friendly fashion and offered me a cup of coffee. My position was confirmed. I was, as I had calculated, at 13 degrees 50 minutes north, 58 degrees 20 minutes west. Then the conversation took an extraordinary turn. Captain, I said, how did you manage to pass so close without seeing me? But we did see you, he replied. We passed quite close, circled right round you, and not seeing any sign of life, we assumed that it was an abandoned dinghy and continued on our way. It was only your signals that brought us back. No sign of life, sir, I retorted. My sail was set, the rudder fixed, my wireless aerial was up. How can you call that no sign of life? Moreover, you recognized me as soon as I was introduced to you, supposing I had been a real castaway, half dead and incapable of making any signal. Would you have abandoned me to my fate? As far as I could make out, the captain had simply not thought of this, and, incredible as it may seem, it had not even occurred to him to sound his siren to see if that brought any signs of life. The reader should not suppose that this was an exceptional case. We had already noticed in the Mediterranean that passenger liners seemed to consider that the necessity of adhering to a strict timetable took precedence over rescue work. They are no longer ships, but trains running on the sea. Unless a passenger drew the captain's attention to something unusual, the train just rolled on. I clambered down again into the dinghy and, after marking my position on the chart, realised that the end was in sight. I had another 70 miles to cover on a course of 232, that is to say, to the southwest, to reach the north coast of Barbados. The wind was strong, and after making a rough calculation of my speed, I expected to see the lighthouse on the northern point, a white light with a double flash at an interval of 10 seconds, visible at 20 miles, between midnight and two in the morning. It was a tiring day, as although I realized that it was highly unlikely I should see anything, I scanned the horizon ceaselessly in the hope of a miraculous early arrival. I slept quite well during the early part of the evening and then woke up for my last watch. At half past midnight, the sky was suddenly illuminated by a bright flash, followed almost immediately by a second. Grabbing my watch, I timed the next pair of flashes. They were exactly 10 seconds apart. For the first time in 65 days, I had regained contact with land. The flashes were the reflection of the lighthouse beam on the clouds. I must have been about 16 miles from the northern point of Barbados and therefore had another dozen hours before having to contend with the problem of landing. I could perfectly well have gone to sleep again, but nearly hysterical with excitement at the proximity of land, I had almost ceased to believe in its very existence. I sat transfixed on one of the floats, watching the regular flashes, counting again and again the time interval between them, each pair seemingly a new miracle, and indeed for me, they were. It took me nearly two hours to convince myself that I was not dreaming. Barbados is one of the most difficult West Indian islands to approach from the eastern side, unless you have a minute knowledge of the coast. The northern part consists entirely of rocky cliffs, against which the waves thunder incessantly, and to the south, there is a barrier of reefs about a mile out to sea. Although there are a number of passages through into the lagoon, 
no one without intimate knowledge would dare to risk them. During the 18th century, it was on this section of the coast that the notorious Sam Lord lured ships to their destruction. He planted two parallel rows of coconut palms, on which he fixed red and white lights to look like the entrance to harbour. Ships used to hurl themselves on the reefs, and Sam Lord sent his black slaves to massacre the entire crew so that no witnesses should survive. Any slave returning without at least one head was immediately put to death, thus ensuring that they gave no quarter. The cargo was then salvaged, and Lord became a fabulously wealthy man. Sam Lord had been dead for 200 years, but it was still impossible for me to land on that part of the coast, and I had two alternatives, either to make for a stretch of about four miles on the northern part of the coast where landing was just possible, or to round the point, throw out my sea anchor in the deep water to the west, and try to attract the attention of the harbour authorities at Spitestown. At daybreak, I was surprised to see that I was much nearer the island than I thought, only four or five miles off. My emotions were very different to those at the time of my landing on the Canaries, but my chances of rounding the northern point and avoiding the mortal dangers of the eastern coast were as problematical as they had been on the earlier occasion. For the first time during the whole Atlantic passage, I let down my leeboards to take the wind abeam in an attempt to round the foaming northern cliff. Admiral Sol had warned me to take the greatest possible precautions while attempting to beach the dinghy, Perhaps my experience will be of some assistance to future castaways. If I can offer a word of advice, it is this. Once in sight of land, the worst seems over, but remember the danger of being killed by the very land which promises salvation. Take your time. Impatience can ruin everything. Stop the boat, observe the coast closely, and choose your point. Never forget that 90% of all accidents occur on landing. You must choose a stretch where the sea beats less violently, where there is sand or beach and not some murderous rock. The way to determine this is by observing the colour and nature of the sea. Little whitecaps probably hide a reef, so take care. Make only for smooth stretches without turbulence or breaking waves. I managed to round the point and then started winking my heliograph at all the farms and sugar factories lining the coast. Along this stretch, the sea was no longer disordered, but roared ashore in long, impressive lines of surf. I had covered about half a mile when I had a terrible shock. Almost on the beach, a boat containing five men appeared to be in difficulties. Had they seen me, and was this an attempt to beat through the surf to my assistance? Caught in a wave, the boat disappeared, and when I saw it again, the five men were no longer in it. I was terribly agitated. Had these men thought I was in difficulties, and in coming out to my assistance, lost two or three lives? I stood in for the shore as fast as I could. When we were within hailing distance, I realised with surprise that they were locals who had not even seen me. They were fishermen and had to risk their lives in the sea as a matter of course every day. Sea urchins are their principal catch, and as the boat tosses over the clear water, one of the crew dives in, however high the waves, prepared to be carried with his catch 200 yards to the sandy shore. I was by this time 300 yards out, and had made up my mind that this was the point to land. However, it took me three more hours to get there. Now I had found a stretch of sand, my life was no longer in danger. The dinghy was undamaged and all its equipment intact, but I took special care to protect my precious log notes with all the details I hoped would help to save the lives of so many future castaways. The final maneuver was exhausting for anybody as worn out as I was. As on most of the African and Caribbean surf beaches, the waves did not break with equal force, 
but with a clearly defined rhythm which differs from place to place. The 7th and the 16th are usually the most dangerous and must be met with extreme care. At this point, every 7th wave seemed the strongest. The wind was a beam and I turned the dinghy to present the stern to the shore. At the third wave in each series I turned again to gain some distance towards the shore. After the fifth, I faced about to the sea again to take the force of the seventh wave on the bow. Laboriously, I covered a few yards at a time, but each successive seventh wave became more and more dangerous. The fishermen who had seen me did not yet seem to realise that there was anything unusual in my arrival or that any boat coming from my direction must hail from the far-off lands of their ancestors. Soon I was surrounded by three boats and entered into a shouting conversation in highly inventive English with their occupants. Then three of the locals plunged in and climbed on board the heretic. For the first time in my Atlantic passage, I had a crew. They were something of a pest, ferreting everywhere, examining everything and rocking the boat from one side to the other. One of them asked me for my watch, but when he found that its tick was hardly to be heard, handed it back with a disdainful air. Another seemed fascinated by a piece of soap which he apparently wanted to eat. The third pounced on my binoculars, which he put to his eyes the wrong way round, and then solemnly scanned the horizon. When I explained to him that they were full of water and useless, he started to shake them as if to empty a bottle. Although I was as good as there, I began to worry about my logbooks and the emergency store of food, which I intended to deposit intact at the first police station, but I was too worn out to keep an eye on everything. I therefore made up my mind to find two or three reliable witnesses as soon as I could who would confirm that I had not touched my provisions. The heretic was still about 20 yards from the beach, which soon changed in colour from yellow to black as the local inhabitants gathered. The fishermen tried to persuade me to wait for the ebb tide before landing, saying that the waves would be less strong. What they really wanted was time to search the whole dinghy before those on shore had a chance. But the desire to touch land, to smell it, to know the feel of warm sand was too strong. Knowing that the dinghy would survive the breaking waves and exasperated by the uselessness of my new crew, I dived in, swam the remaining 20 yards with the heretic's anchor and, aided by scores of people, hauled her ashore. The beach seemed to pitch and toss under my feet, but I was so transported with delight that the hunger pains from which I had been suffering disappeared in a flash. If I may give a last word of advice to future castaways, it is to avoid at all cost too quick or too large a meal on arrival. It could probably kill you. Take all the liquid you like, but go carefully with the solids, sworn enemies of a weakened digestion. Having snatched your life from the sea, do not let the land take it from you. A long bout with hunger can become once safe a fight against the greater menace of a surfeit of food. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month 
which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.